0: Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado.
0: We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast.
1: Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective.
0: On today's program, there's a generation gap among evangelical givers. We'll take a closer look at a new survey of evangelicals. And victims of a church shooting receive a massive financial payout from the U.S. government.
1: We begin today with the story of a Tennessee pastor returning to the pulpit just weeks after he was removed for having an inappropriate relationship.
0: Tennessee megachurch pastor Tavner Smith apologized to his congregation on Sunday for having an inappropriate relationship, saying that he had caused devastation. I can't take back.
1: Smith, who leads Venue Church in Chattanooga, had been on a break from the pulpit after a video surface allegedly showing the pastor kissing a woman who was not his wife.
0: Eight church employees quit the week before Christmas after confronting Smith about that video, other former employees came forward to share their concerns about Smith and the church as well. The pastor said in an Instagram post on January the 6th that he would be taking a six-week sabbatical to fill up so he could come back rested, refreshed, and ready for the rest of the year. I love you, he wrote and I'll see you in February.
1: Warren, Ministry Watch has been covering this story for the past couple of months, and I'm wondering if there are any lessons that pastors and ministry leaders can learn from the situation.
0: Well, there sure are. And I think the main one is this. Don't do what Tavner Smith and his church have done. First of all, Smith and his wife, Danielle, began the divorce process back in May of 2021, 10 months ago now. That should have been the latest date, that the church asked him to take a break from leadership. But he remained in the pulpit for seven months after that, taking a very short leave of absence only after a video of him kissing another woman, a woman not his wife, he was still married at the time, posted on Facebook. This situation is a plain example of a pastor behaving badly and the church elders not taking appropriate action even when they had clear cause to do so. And the fact that he is back just six weeks later, that he has the ability to come back, that the elders of the church allowed him to come back, well, that's just further evidence that the problem here is not just Tabner Smith's problem, but the structure and
1: leadership of the church itself. What do you mean by the structure and leadership of the church?
0: Well, it's something that we see a lot in uh, large non-denominational megachurches. There's no real accountability for the pastor. He can do whatever he wants, and there's no standard of behavior to hold him to. Now, I know a lot of listeners are probably saying, wait a minute. Yes, there are in most churches some sort of behavioral standards. Well, the church might say that they have standards for a pastor's behavior, But if there's no one to enforce those standards, if there's not denominational oversight or if elders can't or won't act, that's the same as having no standards at all.
1: Our next story involves another megachurch pastor, this one facing charges of plagiarism.
0: Yeah, former vice president at the Masters University and Seminary out in California is a man named Dennis Swanson. He has accused John MacArthur of plagiarism in a series of tweets that he posted last weekend, alleging that a book chapter Swanson wrote was attributed to the school's former president in later editions. Swanson, who is former vice president for library accreditation and operations at the Masters University, Tweeted that John MacArthur steals chapters from people. Religion scholar Jamin Hubner of the Center of Faith and Human Flourishing at LCC International University then posted adjacent photos of the table of contents from the two editions of a book called Introduction to Biblical Counseling, which was written by John MacArthur and the staff at the Master's University and Seminary. They showed identically titled chapters, one called Frequently Asked Questions about Biblical Counseling, from the 1994 edition that said Swanson was editor, and the one that was published in 2005 credited MacArthur and another staff person named Wayne Mack. Now, Hubner concluded this, I've edited academic journals, edited symposia. This is plagiarism. It's actually worse because it's the republication of an entire chapter under someone else's name. Now, so far, though, John MacArthur has not responded publicly to any of these accusations.
1: Our next story is the latest chapter in the tragic 2017 Texas Church Massacre, a shooting that left more than two dozen people dead, including eight children.
0: Yeah, this week, a judge ordered the United States Air Force to pay more than $230 million in damages to the survivors' and victims' families because the Air Force failed to flag a conviction that might have kept the gunman from legally buying weapons, the weapon that was used in that shooting. That's the decision of a federal judge uh, in San Antonio on Monday. Devin Patrick Kelly is the name of the shooter. He opened fire during a Sunday service at First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, Texas. Kelly, who died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound after being shot and chased by two men who heard the gunfire at the church, had served in the Air Force before that attack.
1: U.S. District Judge Xavier Rodriguez had ruled in July that the Air Force was 60% liable for the attack because it failed to submit Kelly's assault conviction during his time in the Air Force to a national database.
0: Yeah, and apparently this wasn't just a single administrative oversight. An Air Force record of the Kelly court-martial said that he pleaded guilty to multiple specifications of assault, including striking his wife, choking her with his hands, and kicking her. He was also convicted of striking his stepson on the head and body with a force likely to produce death or grievous bodily harm.
1: In 2012, several months before his conviction in the domestic violence case, Kelly escaped from a mental health center in New Mexico and got in trouble for bringing guns onto a military base and threatening his superior there, according to police reports.
0: Yeah, that's right. Deputies were called to Kelly's home in New Braunfels, Texas, in June of 2013 about the rape case and investigated it for three months, uh, Comal County Sheriff Mark Reynolds said. But it appeared that they stopped investigating after they believed Kelly left Texas and moved to Colorado. Reynolds said that the case was listed as inactive. Under Pentagon rules, information about convictions of military personnel in crimes like assault is supposed to be submitted to the FBI's Criminal Justice Investigative Services Division for inclusion in the National Criminal Information Center database. Any one of these various episodes, Natasha, that you and I've just described, should have prevented Kelly from purchasing the gun that he used in the killings.
1: Warren, we need to take a break here. When we return, how Christians are ministering in some of the toughest places in the world. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. That's SaveTheStorks.com.
1: Welcome back, I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Up next, the story of how the humanitarian group two is helping people in some of the most dangerous places in the world.
0: Yeah, unto is a ministry of crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ, and still known to many by that name. Uh, they provide humanitarian aid around the world in an effort to relieve suffering, restore dignity and reveal hope. They recently sent a fundraising email to supporters seeking contributions to help those in 11 tough places. The email communicated a sense of urgency, saying funds to distribute critical supplies in 13 large containers were needed by March 1st. And I've got to admit, Natasha, that when I get emails like that, which essentially say, send money now or there will be dire consequences, I sometimes get a little suspicious. So we asked one of our reporters, Kim Roberts, to fact check this fundraising email to see what the
1: deal was. What did she find?
0: Well, we found that it appears to be pretty legitimate. Uh, Depending upon the situation, donations will provide a combination of meals, water filters, tarps for shelter, hygiene items, and school supplies. That's according to Unto Executive Vice President Michelle Oney. She uh, told Kim that in a Ministry Watch interview.
1: Supply chain issues haven't just affected Americans.
0: Yeah, that's right. Oni said that COVID-19 and other global factors have increased the difficulty to acquire needed supplies to assist in humanitarian missions like this.
1: Did Ministry Watch ask what countries the supplies would be distributed in?
0: Well, we did, and Oni said that they will go to countries in Latin America and Africa, including Guatemala, uh, Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. She declined to name two of the countries, saying that they were completely closed to the gospel, and others were at high risk uh, for our in-country partners. Therefore, we won't name them either. The safety of many, including our partners and beneficiaries, depends on our discretion, she said said.
1: Now, Warren, you've expressed concern in the past about ministries who use security issues as an excuse for lack of transparency. Do you worry about that in this case?
0: Well, I don't worry, I think. I don't think uh, that would exactly be the right word, but I do remain concerned any time a ministry fails to fully disclose where donor money is going and how it is being used, I understand, for example, that identifying individuals by name and location in some countries could put those people at risk. But just as often, a public profile might actually protect those people from retribution. Uh, Knowing who they are sometimes helps them rather than hurts them. My advice to ministries who work in closed countries is to work directly with a small number of high-capacity donors for this work. Disclose to them what you are doing so that there is some transparency and accountability. But if you're going to make your work in closed countries a part of your mass fundraising efforts, uh, you should disclose where the money's going. I know this is a controversial idea, and I realize that there are exceptions to this rule, but we've seen too many abuses in fundraising, especially in recent years, for so-called emergency efforts in closed countries.
1: Or in our next story is one of those stories that I know a lot of our readers and listeners don't like hearing about. Uh, It's a story of sexual abuse. But this one is one that you think is important for us to face and understand.
0: Yeah, yeah, I really do, and here are some of the basic facts first. Uh, A former pastor and missionary from Georgia has pleaded guilty to engaging in illicit sexual conduct in a foreign place. He was a missionary in Uganda with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. While there, and serving as a missionary for that denomination, he assaulted a girl under his care while doing missionary work. The man's name is Eric Tuninga. He's 40 years old, 44 years old, rather, from Milledgeville, Georgia, and he pleaded guilty on February 2nd and was taken into custody, and he awaits sentencing, which will happen on May the 3rd. According to court records, uh, Tuninga admitted to having sex with Ugandan female minors, some as young as 14 years old.
1: He faces a maximum 30 years in prison and a maximum fine of $250,000 and will be required to register as a sex offender after his release from prison.
0: Yeah, I have to say, Natasha, that this story uh, was something of a gut punch to me and to many of the readers who have responded to me since we first uh, posted this story on our website earlier this week. Some of our readers actually knew Eric Cunningham or his wife personally. I know many uh, people in the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church denomination, including some in leadership roles, and they've responded to me with expressions of grief and horror. Um, Cunningham and his wife have nine children, and at least two of them were adopted from Uganda. So this terrible event has torn apart a large family, it's torn apart a church community. And I should also mention that the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, is a theologically conservative, uh, Bible-believing denomination, though it is small. It has only about 30,000 members in about 300 churches around the country. But it was founded by J. Gresham Machen, who has many admirers as a theologian even today, and such prominent leaders as uh, Greg Bonson, R.J. Rushdoony, and Carl Truman were or are OPC pastors. So uh, the work of that denomination, though small, has had wide influence within evangelicalism.
1: So what can we learn from this experience?
0: Well, first of all, it's worth reiterating that a family has been really torn apart here, so we should pray for this family and for the denomination. Secondly, while sound theology is important, and the OPC, I would say, probably fits into that category of having sound theology, uh, and very few scandals of this kind, there's still no substitute for transparency and accountability among church leaders, uh, even in the disclosing of this kind of information.
1: Well, Warren, we're going to take another break here when we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host, Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm
2: Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. dot com.
1: Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? Well, first, a
0: reminder that we don't just cover bad news here at Ministry Watch. Uh, We have a great story, in fact, this week um, about a 90-year-old woman named uh, Evelyn Buck. She is the Lone Sentinel, uh, as she calls herself, of the West End Church of Christ in Silver Point, Tennessee, Uh, That's a town where there was a thriving community of black Christians that served orphans, taught school children, launched cottage industries, and trained gospel preachers in the early 1900s. She lives almost next door to a 105-year-old church building that sits on a lonely stretch of Center Hill Dam Road, which is right off of Interstate 40 in unincorporated Putnam County. For those of you who know your Tennessee geography, it's about an hour East of nashville now buck 's small, tidy little house uh, has light yellow siding uh, right around the corner from this red brick structure that served as sort of the headquarters for all of those activities that I just described. Uh, in fact, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places back in twenty seven back in two thousand and seven I should say, and many people who come to visit it today also make a quick stop uh, to evelyn buck 's house and have an interview with her. She's very hospitable despite her old age. As I said, she's 90. Uh, There's a lot more to this story. I can't go into all the details here except to say, go to our website and read Evelyn's story. It's fascinating. You can find it right on the front page of our website.
1: Our next story involves mental health in the Black and Latino communities.
0: Yeah, Christians often turn to their pastors for mental health care, even when those clergy have limited expertise uh, with those who are mentally struggling. That's according to a new study by the Religion and Life Program at Rice University. Daniel Bolger is a doctoral candidate at Rice University, and he co-authored the report. He says pastors, whether they want to be or not, are on the front lines of of this mental health crisis, and Black and Latino Christians are far more likely to turn to their pastors for help with mental health issues than to trained mental health professionals. Bolger said that mental health and medical providers have an opportunity to help clergy and congregants alike by creating networks that include pastors and work with local religious communities.
1: Finally, Warren, we have a story about evangelicals and giving. It turns out that the young evangelicals have trust issues with their churches.
0: Yeah, the donation preferences of American evangelical Christians uh, are changing. And younger evangelicals, those under the age of 40, are more likely to target uh, their largesse beyond their immediate community and uh, are less likely to trust organizations that solicit contributions and depend more on word of mouth from people that they trust. These are the results of a study called The Generation Gap. Evangelical Giving Preference, which is a new study from Infinity Concepts and Gray Matter Research. Younger evangelicals are also more likely to donate to more organizations, with nearly half, 49%, giving to at least five nonprofits in any given year. In contrast, fewer than one-third of older evangelical Christians, about 31 percent—and by the way, for all these numbers, let me just say that's nearly a full 20 percent lower uh, than the under-40 crowd—they put uh, their donations into a much smaller set of organizations with whom they have a previous relationship.
1: Warren, I know you've been reporting on giving patterns for years. How does this data hit you?
0: well in many ways it's not surprising i mean we've we've known for a long time that there are differences in giving patterns between older people and younger people. That's both in the evangelical world, but also outside the evangelical world. Uh, I think it's important that ministry and church leaders, though, not overreact to these data. Lots of ministries say they want to attract younger donors, and I do think it's important for Christians to learn to give, to start giving early in life. Generosity is not Optional for the Christian, but young evangelicals also have a lot of demands on them. Uh, they're often, you know, still raising families or or starting families or paying for uh, student loans. They've just, you know, got a lot of things going on and t- trying to totally bend your fundraising strategy to adapt to uh, younger people uh, is probably not the wisest thing to do for an organization. The over 40 audience is, for the most part, the donor class in America. So my advice to ministry leaders is to be clear and direct about the work that you are doing. Uh, Money follows ministry. That's a rule that works for both older people and younger people. Do God's work in God's way, and you will not lack God's resources. I know that's an old saying, it sounds like a cliche even, but doesn't mean it's not true. To the donors, I would say this, be as generous as you can. Generosity is both a blessing Uh, and a sign of spiritual maturity. If you say you're a mature Christian, you are a generous giver. If you are not giving generously to the Lord's Word, you're kidding yourself about your own spiritual maturity. And to repeat, I advocate give to the local church first, and then to a few carefully researched ministries. Don't give to fads and trends or emotional appeals that might show up Uh, in your inbox or uh, through the mail. Uh, Though it doesn't hurt to have a plan each year to give maybe just a little bit of extra money to special needs that might arise in your church and in the world. Sounds
1: like good advice.
0: Well, and by the way, I interviewed Ron Sellers of Gray Matter Research about this study uh, on this week's extra episode of the podcast. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I recommend that you sort of um, scroll back and check it out.
1: And who's in the ministry spotlight this week?
0: Well, this week we are featuring Westminster Theological Seminary. It was incorporated in March of 1950. 19- 30, uh, nearly uh, 100 years ago, more than 90 years ago in Philadelphia, to train men for the gospel ministry as pastors, evangelists, and teachers. Now, Natasha, you might remember that a little earlier in the program I mentioned J. Gresham Machen. He was one of the founders of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary. Now, you can take a deep dive into the finances of this seminary, which is a member of the ECFA and has a of about $21 million a year by going to the Ministry Watch website.
1: Any final thoughts before we go?
0: Well, Justin, if you have a story or that you'd like for us to cover, or maybe a ministry that you think needs a closer look, please email us. Our email is info at That will come directly to my desk, and we'll take it from there. Also, a reminder that we'll be doing a free webinar next week. I'll be interviewing Michael McKenzie uh, via Zoom about his new book, Don't Blow Up Your Ministry. That's a great book for pastors, ministry leaders and those who care about them, Uh, Though the webinar is free, you do need to sign up, and to do so, just uh, look for the link in my daily Ministry Watch emails. We're limiting this webinar to 150 people, and we're already more than halfway there, so if you want to attend, you need to sign up soon. And finally, you can help the program by leaving us a rating on your podcast app. The more ratings we get, the easier it is for other people to find us. It's a quick, easy, and free way that you can support Ministry Watch.
1: The producers for today's program are Rich Rosl and Ben Warwick. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Gutterd, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Ann Stike, Terry Wallace, Kim Roberts, Eric Treinketstad, and Rod Pritzer. Special thanks to the nonprofit Times and Christian Chronicle for contributing materials to this week's podcast. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado.
0: And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: You've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.